for every system, for every situation, ask yourself the question, who is benefiting from this thing? Who is gaining power from this thing? And that really caused me to go back to my work and say, yeah, this is the question that we must ask when we are trying to dismantle systems of racism and issues of institutionalized racism. Who is benefiting here? Who is gaining power here? As a young mother, I experienced a paradigm shift that transformed how I saw education and ultimately the world around me. I started this podcast, The Luminous Mind, to connect with and learn from people who are disrupting the status quo in how they learn, educate, and live in the world around them. Prepare for a paradigm shift. Light a candle. Light your world. Benjamin Franklin said, instead of cursing the darkness, light a candle. You're listening to The Luminous Mind with your host, Rebecca Bowman. Today's Firestarter is Contrilla Ard, Ph.D. Contrilla is a recent transplant to the Atlanta area along with her husband and three littles. A passionate creative at heart, she has answered the call to encourage women in all stages of life and of various backgrounds through empathy, transparency, and love. She is a faith-based personality and spiritual development writer who believes in the power in collective strength, community, and fellowship. You'll find her wherever people are sharing stories of triumph. Well, welcome, Quantrilla. Thank you. I'm so excited to hear your message of collective strength and community and fellowship, as well as a lot of those stories of triumph that we talked about in your bio. You know, we're going to touch on a lot of issues with people of color and, you know, all that stuff that you want to share with us. But before we get into any of that, please tell us a little bit more about yourself. Sure, sure. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Um, let's see. I currently live in Atlanta. Uh, we recently relocated here about two months ago. Uh, we were in Maryland for the past, goodness, 12 years or so. Uh, my husband and, and our three children, we were a family that decided to embark on doctoral studies in the middle of uh, our crazy life. So my husband and I both recently graduated with our PhDs. Um, and in the middle of that whole season, we ended up having three kids. We moved a couple times and had a whole host of other things happen. So grateful that we were able to complete that milestone. And my PhD in particular is in health psychology. And I chose to look at how racism influences maternal stress for African-American women and negative birth outcomes. I ended up kind of coming into this uh, research topic because of my own personal experience with having a negative birth outcome as a woman of color. And as I began to kind of look around and, and see my peer group was also experiencing this same phenomena, I knew that there was something that needed to be explored. Um, so that kind of pushed me to that particular research topic. And um, in addition to 
my PhD. I love to encourage women. I love to form community and be in community with other women. And I often write to encourage women and, and really just, I love to share stories. I love to hear stories. I love to share stories. Um, so that's kind of who I am in a nutshell. I, I love to help women um, develop themselves personally and spiritually. And I love to talk about this health disparity of Black maternal uh, mortality and Black infant mortality, because I really believe that awareness is really the first step to promoting change. That is so true. And you and I are like kindred spirits in the fact that, you know, we love to talk and write and encourage all kinds of women um, and community. That's awesome. I'd love to know, like, maybe a little bit of background. I mean, you, you kind of touched on it with a negative birth outcome. Um, but, you know, what piqued your interest, you know, in this direction of Black maternal and infant health? Sure. And, you know, this call to encourage women. Yeah, so I wanted to find a way to marry my passion to be with people along with my passion to help people. And so honestly, uh, if we scroll back a little bit further, I have a master's in public health. And that's really when my interest in promoting Black women's health and Black children's health started. I started researching breastfeeding and support systems for Black women. And so that really was where I kind of cut my teeth on that research topic. And so as I, you know, moved through life and, you know, got married and began to have my own children, specifically, I ended up having um, an issue with preeclampsia for my first delivery. You know, I'm a first time mom. I don't really know what to expect because honestly, no one can truly prepare yeah, you. Exactly. <laughs> no, you, you just cannot truly prepare a woman to be a mom for the first time. You just Or can't. going through that first pregnancy. You Absolutely. Just, yeah, you have no idea. <laughs> Absolutely. And so in my case, I, I literally had a textbook pregnancy. Everything was normal. Everything was perfect all of my vitals were great, you know, instead of gaining weight, I lost weight, honey, mm -hmm. I was just on top of the world. Until <laughs> um, about 36, 35, 36 weeks, I had a, a prenatal appointment. And I was so excited because I was like, Oh, yes, I'm finally going to get to go every week and see the baby every week. But that's not how that worked out. So <laughs> I, I uh, up in maybe two weeks before that, um, that, that appointment, I started to feel a little strange and, and I couldn't put my finger on it. I couldn't pinpoint what it was. Um, but there was just a strange, something felt off. I, I, I didn't feel like myself physically. Um, emotionally I was fine. You know, I was trying to prepare myself for this new human life, you know, bringing into the world but something didn't feel right physically. And my husband is a health professional. He's a physician assistant. And he kept asking me, you know, are you in pain? Um, is something, you know, is something hurting? You know, what is it? And, and he couldn't really get to the heart of it either. And I didn't even know how to vocalize what I was feeling because it was something I'd never experienced before. And it all came to a head when I went to that appointment and come to find out my blood pressure was extremely elevated 
And here's the thing. If you've been to a prenatal appointment before, (laughs) you know that you wait in the waiting room and then you get in the examination room and you wait again. So when I saw the OBGYN within five minutes of being there, I knew something was wrong. (laughs) (laughs) And that's so terrible, but I knew something was wrong because I literally had never seen the doctor that fast ever in, in any of my pregnancies. Yeah. And so, you know, the nurse came in, she took my vitals. She was like, "Mm, switch on the other side. Mm, I'll be right back. And then the doctor came in and he did the same thing. Switch on one side, switch on the other side. And he says to me, oh my word, I'm so sorry. You know, it just really seems like your blood pressure is super, super high. And we think you have preeclampsia and we're going to have to deliver this baby today. Wow. And I looked at him like, excuse me, (laughs) (laughs) you are not serious right now. That just led to days and weeks of just uncertainty and Um, you know, and dread because here I was a first time mom who had had no issues the entire pregnancy now in this state of extreme emergency where I I could lose my life, my child could lose his life or both, you know what I mean? And it was so traumatic. I just didn't really even have time to process it. And so as I'm there going through this issue, you know, I ended up having an emergency C-section and these are all connected in a way now that I look back at my story, but I didn't know what I didn't know. And I say this all the time in various situations because not being aware of specific issues that are related to you and your health as a woman and especially as a Black woman, puts you at extreme risk of injury, of mortality, morbidity. And here I was at this juxtaposition of, I had never even heard of preeclampsia before that day. And then let's just add on top of that, that I didn't even know that as a Black woman, having a child for the first time, I was a little overweight, those all put me at higher risk for developing preeclampsia. And I had never heard of it before. Wow. And I'm thinking to myself, how is this possible that I've gone through eight months of prenatal care and this was not mentioned to me? And, and, you know, you do the normal tests, you know, you do the the glucose tests, Mm -hmm. you know, you do the, I think they give you an option of having uh, like genetic testing if you're over a certain age, but as a black woman, sitting in the doctor's office, you know, there was just no other education or awareness, you know, health literacy about this particular issue. And here I was, I found myself in this situation and I was completely scared to death. And at the time, I had no idea that Black women were dying three to four times more than their white counterparts when it came to pregnancy-related morbidity and mortality. Had no idea. Well, and I mean, what kind of doctor were you going to? Were you going to a white doctor? I mean, did he just not know or what was the... All of my doctors were, um, I want to say I initially started with an Asian female doctor, but it was a group. Okay. So, Mm -hmm. and we're talking about systems and things that also have a role to play as well. So in 
group, you know, you may have one main doctor, but because your doctor may or may not be on call or on duty when you have your baby, you have to go to every doctor in the office. Yeah, I, and I, I, I understand that, but it, it kind of, it's a disconnect in care, really. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. You kind of have to explain everything every time you go to a new person. And then you may or may not even end up with the doctor that you formed a relationship with over that time. Or would like, you know, or, right. or want. Yeah, absolutely. And so when, as women and Black women specifically, as we choose our physicians, as we choose the people that are involved in our care, you know, we choose them because of specific preferences. And so imagine that I have chosen a specific doctor that I can put my faith and trust in, and then I have a completely different physician handling my birth. And that's where I was. Mm -hmm. So my physician was, at the time, was a white male. And he said something very dismissive. He was like, oh, we're going to have to take the baby, but don't worry. The baby's small, so it shouldn't be a difficult delivery. Wow. (laughs) Yeah, you would think he'd be worried that it was small, right? (laughs) I mean, but as a first-time mom who's never experienced delivery, for him to belittle the process the way he did was a red flag. And so, um, So did you end up losing the baby then? I did not. Okay. Okay. Can we can we send up a praise? I did not. Okay. Um, yeah. My son was born four weeks early. He was four pounds and eight ounces, but he was healthy. Oh, that's he was, good. you know, praise God, he was healthy, and you know, he didn't require any um, extra measures, medical measures. Um, he needed a little oxygen uh, when he first got here, but. Other than that, he was breathing on his own and it was a blessing and a miracle because the way that whole situation played out, especially with the fact that my induction turned into an emergency C-section, it it was just a really a blessing that he got here, you know, healthy and safe and that I am here to tell the story. Yeah. Well, and then what made you start to study the whole, you know, the preeclampsia? And I mean, I guess after you go through it, sometimes you want to kind of replay like what happened to me and what, and then how did that work into all the stuff that you've learned about like racism and healthcare, as well as black women in particular have that higher rate three to five times with pregnancy, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, complications. Yeah. So, you know, personally, I didn't think to research it right away because, you know, I had just started my PhD process literally almost nine months earlier. So as soon as I started my PhD program, about a month or so later, I found out I was pregnant. So, you know, fast forward nine months to this, you know, very horrific experience. I just needed really that first year or so to just kind of get myself back together. Yeah. Um, But what I did notice was that my other friends had started, we were all kind of having babies at the same time. And when I looked around, I noticed that they were also having negative birth outcomes. You know, there were women who had miscarriages. There were women who had placenta previas. There were women who um, had preeclampsia. And I was like, oh my word, what is going on? You know, preterm delivery. And as I kind of began to look and see that almost all of us had these negative birth outcomes as black women, I started to try to figure out, well, why is this happening? Because 
you know, we all have advanced degrees. Um, mm-hmm. we yeah, all- you're not, you're not like uneducated women with poor healthcare. It doesn't sound like, I mean, it sounds like right. you have it's the top so, quality so stuff. Research in the past basically said that women who had like college degrees and higher socioeconomic status usually had better health outcomes. But here I was, myself and my peers included, who all had high social economic status. We all had prenatal care. We all had, you know, decent, great insurance that, you know, where it wasn't a problem with access or it wasn't a problem with just having affordable health care. So what was the common thread that we were all having this negative experience? And that led me to the literature. That yeah. drove me to go and search and dig about what was going on um, that was common in our lives that put us in this situation. Well, and maybe that's the problem is you have to go dig for it, right? I mean, that's... That's mm-hmm. where the racism comes into play. Is that that's where it comes in because the only thing that we had in common was that we were all black women living in America. When we when we removed and stripped away every other, they call them protective factors: income, insurance, access, you know, education. When you strip away all of those things, the common the last common thread was that we were black women in America. Yeah, I thought to myself, well, it can't just be that simple. Like, it really can't just be that. But as I began to dig into the research over and over and over and over again, I began to see these patterns of disproportionate rates of our babies being born early, our babies being born underweight, you know, pregnancy losses, miscarriages, preeclampsia, other pregnancy-related morbidities and mortalities. It was all there in black and white. And the only thing that I could tie this all to or link it to was the fact that black women experience living in America differently than women of other ethnicities, specifically compared to white women. And that was such a devastating factor for me Mm -hmm. because, you know, my parents said, hey, go to school, get a good education, get a good job. Those things will help you in life. And I believed them. I believed that if I did these things, followed this equation, followed these steps, that I would not have any issues. Yeah. But here I was, you know, having this preterm, you know, low birth weight, ba- extremely low birth weight baby which should have turned out differently, honestly, according to the literature, either my baby should have died or I should have died or both. But, you know, (laughs) right, right. And so, and this is the conundrum that we're dealing with is that you have a whole group, a community of women who are disproportionately affected with these negative birth outcomes. And honestly, when you link everything back to their experience as Black women, the bottom line always comes back to racism. Racism in their communities, uh, racism in housing, and racism in medical care, and racism institutionally. Mm -hmm. It's just so pervasive. 
it it's it's like an insidious thing that seeps into the hearts and pores of this community and it just affects every tenant of our lives and this is one in particular that tends to be particularly egregious because women are dying babies dying preventable yeah. Well, when I talked to Kayla Richards too, I mean, she talked about, I mean, it goes, it, it is systemic. I don't know mm-hmm. if I'm saying that right. A mm-hmm. systemic mm-hmm. racism problem that we don't want to acknowledge. And I, I'm sure, you know, there are women like myself, you know, that I'm white, you know, I've lived in the, and I could, I could say, well, this doesn't happen. And I think that's what's, I think that's the challenge. And that's what I want to focus on now. I think the challenge is that we are all experiencing a different world in the same country. And I I would love you to talk on, I mean, because this, like you said, this goes back to everything, to your communities, to what's being the education or the literature that you have on, you know, things that you should be worried about and that white doctors, or is it any doctor maybe, isn't aware of these issues you know, let's touch on, let's start talking about some of these challenges that you're experiencing. And we definitely want to focus on that healthcare issue, but I'd love to talk about all of it. Like where, you know, those challenges of that systemic racism, that's a challenging word for me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Those challenges with that systemic racism and how we can kind of turn the tide on this, especially as we join together. I mean, that's the whole point, right? We want to build community and hopefully there's women like me that want to build community with you and make sure this goes away, (laughs) you know, because... So So when we think about how systems are set up, there was a a quote that I saw on Instagram not too long ago. And it's a question that really uh, shook me. And it's a question now that I'm going to start asking my children. We're homeschooling this year. So more importantly than making sure they have all of their boxes, you know, checked off, I also want to make sure that they have a good critical mind, you know, when they're receiving information. And so this particular post I saw, it said, for every system, for every situation, ask yourself the question, who is benefiting from this thing? Who is gaining power from this thing? And that really caused me to go back to my work and say, yeah, This is the question that we must ask when we are trying to dismantle systems of racism and issues of institutionalized racism. Who is benefiting here? Who is gaining power here? And when I think about how some of these systems were set up, and let's just specifically start with healthcare because we're talking about Black women's health. Healthcare systems were designed and they were built on things like eugenics and, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know what I mean? And, and slavery, you know, if you think about the, the father of what we call modern day gynecology, um, he used slaves who did not consent to create experiments on these women to have, unfortunately, what we all enjoy as pain-free deliveries and things of that nature when we think of the historical influence of how these systems were set up, these were all set up on racist foundations, okay? And so 
the system was never really designed for black and brown people to be well taken care of. Now, yes, times have changed. Yes, there have been, you know, transitions. And yes, there have been advances in medicine. And, you know, we know that every physician takes an oath to not do harm, right? Yeah. Um, but this is the same oath that people have been taking for hundreds of years. And we know for certain that harm was done historically and that harm is still being done presently. So when yeah. we are trying to dismantle these systems, we have to ask ourselves who is benefiting from this thing. Yeah. And once we can identify who's benefiting and also who's not benefiting, then we can have conversations about leveling the playing field and not so much talking about equalizing leveling that playing field, but equity. So there's a slight difference between making something equal and making something equitable, right? Yeah. And so when we're talking about let's make something equitable, that means that we both benefit, okay? And it's not saying I cut you a half and I cut me a half because if I'm in greater need, those equal halves are still not helping the person who's in greater need, right? Yeah. Well, so it's like, have you seen the picture of the kids yeah. trying to look over the fence? And yep. they all have a, a ladder that is the same that's ladder, right. but mm-hmm. because of their height, and that's genetics, right? Because of their, their biological makeup, that, that ladder doesn't work the same for each child. And that's somewhat what we're talking about here. I mean, when we're talking about healthcare, I think there's different needs for a white person that's different from a person of color, in my opinion. Is that what we're talking about kind of thing? Well, so that's what we've been taught, right? Mm -hmm. Exactly what you said is what we've been taught. We've been taught that there are differences between white women and black women, and that is how our medical system has worked over the past however many years it's been in existence. But what I'm here to say is there aren't differences. Okay. We are more alike than we are different. I and like that message. Okay. <laughs> listen, and, and when I tell you this completely changes our perspective on how we dismantle these systems of thinking, because what's happened is as long as people think we're different, there's space and room for people to be treated differently. Yeah. And that, that's a breeding ground for bias. That's a breeding ground for health disparities because in your mind, you're like, oh, well, these are two completely different groups of people and they need to be treated differently. And that's not true. Now to take a break. Are you new to homeschooling? Maybe you're a veteran homeschooler and just need some continued encouragement. I'm so happy to announce that the Idaho Freedom Action is sponsoring me in offering a free webinar. For a couple of years, I've been teaching coaching classes for an online school, and this year, in an effort to reach a larger demographic, I'm opening these courses up to everyone. These courses help give us a broader vision and better family relationships as we work through creating self-directed love of learning families. We are holding these classes every Wednesday night at 7 p.m. Mountain Time through the school year. To find out more about these courses, go to theluminousmind.net and sign up on our email list. You can also join us on Instagram or the Luminous Mind Facebook page to find out more information. Or just simply check out the link in the show notes for this episode. 
recordings for these courses will also be available on the Luminous Mind Patreon page. Join us for empowered learning for families. Now back to the episode. So in my line of work, I try to encourage people to look at how we are the same. And in the exact same scenario, with the exact same situation, with the only difference being that one person is white and one person is black, really that shouldn't even make a difference because that's something, I'm going to nerd out real quick here, that's a phenotype, okay? So a phenotype is what you can observe and see and touch and feel. A genotype is what's inside. And honestly, none of it is different. None of it is different. So if the only thing that is different is what we can observe and see of someone, then that's a problem. Because now you're saying, I'm treating these two people different because they look different, A, and that must mean that either one of them is good and one of them is bad. Well, and that's the story of racism, right? I mean, that's, that's why we did slavery for so long. For hundreds of years, the black person was seen as another creature, basically, mm-hmm. and that we weren't the same. And that was the message that was pushed that made it seem okay to do that. Absolutely. And it's, it's unfortunately still pervasive in, you know, the judicial system, mm-hmm. in the healthcare system, <laughs> yeah. in the educational system. I mean, it's everywhere. So part of really starting is awareness and knowing that there are no differences. Yeah. And and to treat people as such. That's an interesting, I mean, you say so much that I want to talk about. I love the fact you talk about that the healthcare is based on eugenics. We don't really think of that. And so much, I think that you know, when you look at where a board, I don't know if you even want to get into this. If you don't, I'll just. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. But, but if you look at where abortion clinics are set up, we are targeting people of color. And I really almost feel like there is a, like, we're still trying to, uh, like, there's a Holocaust kind of going on right under our noses. And we think that, oh, well, this is good for these people because we don't want to end up with, you know, a bunch of babies that don't have fathers around or that don't whatever. But I mean, are those issues that you feel like are somewhat related or? Absolutely. Because when we look at issues such as this, when we're talking about abortion, you know, the prevalence of abortion clinics in black and brown communities or the ease of access in black and brown communities. That Here's the thing. The statistics will show that there are just as many women of other ethnicities that are having abortions as black and brown women. But where you see access is in those black and brown communities. And I know we're kind of veering off, but we'll come back. <laughs> um, honestly, when we look at the history of, you know, Planned Parenthood and those things like that, and looking at where this whole explosion came from, if we dig very carefully, we will find that all of this historically is linked to the fight for desegregation in schools. That's interesting. And yeah. again, these are things that are institutionally racist systems And so now we're seeing the fallout of these systems that were put in place, you know, 50, 60, 70 years ago. And now we're like, oh, wow, 
you know, why is there easier access to abortion in black and brown communities? Well, if you're a person who's advocating for schools to not be segregated, well, what you can do is, you know, just try to lessen the amount of black people that are around. Okay. So basically they took, because there were so many people like, yeah, let's, you know, not have schools segregated. The general population was okay with that. Like the powers that be, the people who benefited from this or whatever, what we talked about, they're like, okay, what's the next step? We have to just start this. Like I said, I I feel like it's a Holocaust going on with, yeah. And that's why that question was so important. Who benefits from this thing? Who benefits? Who gets power from this institutional change or this mm-hmm. systemic change? And, you know, is it fair? Is it equitable? And most times it's not. Yeah. Well, and when we look at community, you know, kind of coming back to that, you know, trying to build this collective strength mm-hmm. and community, community is a huge thing in the black community, at least from what I've observed. But mm-hmm. yet at the same time, like we look at some of the communities of people of color and uh, it's mayhem, you know, but is that part of that too? Like who's benefiting, who's gaining power from the situation? Because, I don't really feel like, I don't know how to say this and have it sound okay, but, you know, white people aren't necessarily more committed to their families or more whatever. What creates a situation where there's so much dysfunction in those communities, do you think? Does that go back to the gaining power? (laughs) Well, that too, but it's about who creates the narrative. Uh So what you said is very profound. It's not as if black people have cornered the market on fractured families or people who face addictions or, you know. Yeah. I mean, it happens everywhere. Those are equal on both sides of the aisle. So it's about who's telling the story. It's about who's crafting the narrative. And if you have someone in power who believes in promoting white supremacy and promoting institutionalized racism because they benefit from it somehow, Mm -hmm. story will always lean toward the side of the oppressor. Always. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's the thing with history, right? History is always written by the, the winners and they're the ones that end up telling the story later on. I mean, that's why we're seeing this horrible situation in our public schools because the people who conquered were the people who were telling the story. I, I found it interesting when Juneteenth was coming up, you know, with all of the stuff that's been going on in the media lately. And I mean, so many people can see the problems, you know, and I'm a huge Black Lives Matter supporter. Um, Mm -hmm. But it was interesting to me how many people that are non-white, maybe, or even people of color that hadn't heard of Juneteenth. Yeah. And and that goes back to that school system again. It absolutely does. And I was one of those people. I mean, honestly, I didn't know about Juneteenth until it's been, and, I, and I'm so embarrassed to say it, but it's been probably within the last five years that I found out about Juneteenth. And when I say found out, air quotes, because thank you, social media, that, that's how I found out about Juneteenth, honestly. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I am a product of a very, I went to majority schools. Many, many, many times, many years, I found myself being either the only black person in the class or the only black girl in the class. 
So of course, learning history in a majority institution, you're not going to find out about Juneteenth. You're not going to find out about other Black heroes that, you know, yeah. without their inventions, without their... Um, oh, yeah. There's amazing you know, stuff out there. Right. Yeah. You know, w- without their advocacy, the things that we currently enjoy based on those people and their sacrifices. And it saddens me, but now it allows me the opportunity to fill in the gaps for my children. Yeah. And what a great time to do that (laughs) during COVID, for sure. I'd love to know, like, how you feel like your paradigm has changed over time and with experience about all of the stuff you've learned, you know, in particular, the maternal health education issues, but just in general, better health and happiness for Black families in general. Yeah. You know, I used to think, I used to believe that, you know, like I said, if you just work hard and keep your head down, you know, make more money, you know, do these things, you know, acquire these things, they would help you have a better quality of life. Unfortunately, we've seen several instances where people like Serena Williams, Beyonce, who have had issues when it comes to, you know, birthing and, you know, racism in medical care. Mm -hmm. So it's not about how much money you have. It's not about your status. It's not about what you possess, what you own. It is about empowerment. It is about uh, self-awareness. And those are the things that I try to promote, even though I am, you know, bombarding people with statistics and I am pushing for narrative changes when it comes to the stories of Black women who have died in childbirth, uh, who are disproportionately affected by pregnancy loss and negative birth outcomes. Those things are important, but I also want Black women specifically to know that birthing should be a positive experience. We should not be afraid to have children. We should not fear for our lives. And so along with those statistics, you know, awareness of what is out there, but empowering them to speak up, empowering them to be in tune with their bodies. So if something is wrong, that they speak up and say something. I was so afraid to call my doctor to tell them that I didn't feel well because I thought that they would dismiss me because I didn't have aches or pains. I I didn't have any swelling. I didn't have any headaches or, you know, blurred vision, which are kind of those typical things that go along with preeclampsia. I didn't have any of them. So I was afraid to call and say, well, you know, I'm feeling strange. Can I come in? And you know what? The difference between me being afraid to call them and go in was because I didn't want to be seen as that mom or that patient yeah you don't want to be the the thorn in somebody's side basically or the the thing is that insecurity while I can't 100% say that had something to do with race it was an insecurity that I personally don't believe I would have had if I were not a black patient yeah because when I've had conversations with other black moms I hear the same thing I didn't want them to think that I was being a nuisance. I didn't want them to think that here's another crazy black woman. You know what I mean? And those are real insecurities that are affecting our bodies and our our birth processes. And what I want 
to promote for Black women is if you know something is wrong with your body. Listen, I advocate for all women to be in tune with their bodies, but especially for Black women, don't be afraid to speak up because it literally could be the difference between life and death. And in my situation, it was. It was absolutely the difference between life and death. And I'm so grateful that when I went in, that I was not in a worse state. Preeclampsia, your blood pressure can get so high that you can go into, you know, having seizures. Wow. You know what I mean? So and it, it is scary. And I had, I mean, when I say I had no idea the danger I was in, I had no idea, but I was too afraid to speak up. I was very in tune with my body. I knew something was wrong. I just didn't know how to verbalize it. And again, that goes back to a lack of trust for your provider. Because honestly, for, for me specifically, I have felt more comfortable going to providers who look like me because I have felt more care, more concern. Doctors of color tend to listen to people of color. They don't just come in, ask for your name, take your blood pressure, give you a pill and kick you out the door. That has been my experience. That has been the experience that I have heard of other Black women and women of color. So it makes me specifically want to have a provider who looks like me because I feel I can trust them more. Is that easy to find or is that difficult? I mean, it depends. Uh, it depends on where you are. Where, okay? <laughs> it might be hard in Idaho where I'm at. Yeah. And that's the other issue is while I feel like Black women and Black babies have better outcomes when they are with providers of color, there obviously is the issue of access. If you live in a rural community, you may not be able to find, you know, a provider of color. So here we are having now another issue that affects, you know, Black women's care. So it's difficult because you want to change the mindset so that the distrust of the medical system is not there. But it is just historically ingrained in us and not just historically, but the experiences that Black women and women of color have on a regular and consistent basis. So that's why I want to change the mindset and shift the paradigm for Black women. While we may not be able to change the system right away, we can change your mindset. We can change how you advocate for yourself. We can change limiting your birth network to just OBGYNs. Expand your birth network. Consider doulas. Consider midwives. Consider other birthing professionals that have been trained to help you listen to your body, to help you bring your children into the world in a healthy and respectful manner. And please know that I am not dissing my medical care people, but I am identifying areas of opportunity that have long been ignored. Yeah. Well, and that's really what I hope we can do, you know, when we start talking about that community again, yeah. that, that it shouldn't matter what color your provider is and that she or he will listen to each person, no matter what they look like, the same, but it is a problem. 
in that regard. What do you think are some ways that we can create better collective strength and community? I mean, when we saw the whole Black Lives Matter thing, we saw people of all races join together because this is a problem. I was really sad to see there were a lot of people dismissing it because of his criminal record. And not that that doesn't matter, but the more incidences that you have with a police officer, the more likely the violence is to escalate. And this happens a lot with people of color. You can talk to what different movie stars and they talk about how they can be in Beverly Hills. They've worked really hard for this beautiful car that they're driving and they will get pulled over more often than, you know, their white counterparts. And here they are like totally, you know, looking the part of what we think every clean cut person should look like, but there is some disparage there. And I guess that's what I want to see is like us, you know, working together and not just working to burn the system down. Do you know, I don't know how to say it without. No, I totally get it. Two ends Um, of the spectrum. Like I support Black Lives Matter, but then I'm, what I'm seeing sometimes too is just like, now I wonder who's that benefit and who's gaining power from that situation. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So along with that is learning how we receive information. Okay. Yeah. So we talked a little bit about, you know, the fact that it shouldn't matter if someone has a criminal record, whether they are treated with respect, you know what I mean? So yeah, um, a police officer can't be judge, jury, and whatever, executioner. Yeah. No matter what your color is, you don't want that. And that's the problem. The problem that we're seeing is that you have a group of people who are already judged by the color of their skin, regardless of their criminal record. Yeah. And you also have another issue at work is the criminalization of Black people yeah. when they have been wrongly treated you have two issues at work you have the issue of you know the law enforcement who has now decided oh being black is a threat and a skin color is not a threat a person is a threat but a skin color is not a threat but now black and brown bodies have been criminalized before there's even a chance for that situation to be de-escalated. Yeah. Can I um, interject here too? I I think it's interesting, you know, when we talk about like having a provider that's your same color because they look at you differently. I was watching, I wish I could remember what it was. I think it's the Innocence Project on Netflix. And they were talking about how a black man was arrested for a rape of a woman. And she was like, I'm sure I can totally see his face. I totally know what this person looks like. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, she described the person. It ended up looking pretty similar to uh, a man that they arrested. He hadn't had a criminal record, but he was black. And she, you know, she looks at him like, yep, that's the guy. And later on in the show, they talked about how it is proven that when a white person looks or no matter what your color is, I mean, it can probably be the same for like me looking at an Asian person as well, or me looking at somebody that's opposite of your race Mm -hmm. sees every person they look the same. And I was like, that can't be true. But they were showing me the picture and I was like, well, that looks totally like the guy. I can see why that would have happened because, you know, I mean, it ended up being a genetics test that he took and obviously he did not rape the woman. But it was interesting, like in the show, there was black people like, he doesn't look anything like that. That guy's here has, uh, you know, a lighter skin tone. And I mean, they could point out the differences, but I was shocked 
that I couldn't point out the differences. To me, it did look the same. And I think there is something to say, like we need to make sure, I mean, of course we want integration and we want community and whatever, but I do believe that there's something to be said about, you know, putting people with the same skin tone because of that, because they can see the uniqueness in that person that maybe somebody of a different skin tone wouldn't. Does that make sense to you? It absolutely makes total sense. And here is, this is going to blow your mind. This only happens when you have relationship with people who don't look like you, right? Yeah. You will only be able to appreciate and observe the nuances between Black people and Brown people when you have relationship with them. This is one reason why I'm so invested in community, because... While I, as a Black person, understand this, I don't necessarily expect my white counterparts to understand this because for the most part, white people have not been forced to live with other people and do life with other people who don't look like them. So it's very easy for someone to say, oh my goodness, I saw that Black, that black man right yeah. there. And yeah, and if you had been raped, like the woman's like, you know, I have that face seared into my yeah. mind. <laughs> yeah. You have a face seared into your mind. It's not that face. And, but again, and it could have been the skin tone, you know, once again, she knew it was a black man. And but do you know how many shades black people come in? Uh, I know. <laughs> it's, like you know what I'm so it's just you're saying a black man that it's so random because yeah. there's so many shades of black people. There's so many shades of brown people. Shoot, there's even different shades of white people. Yeah, exactly. So, to not even, and this is one thing that is problematic and obviously is kind of linked into privilege when it comes to, to having white privilege. When you don't have to identify people by some other nuance than their skin color. That is a part of white privilege because you don't have to say, oh, well, that person has gray eyes or green eyes or blue eyes or whatever. And listen, Black people have different color eyes too. (laughs) So you don't even have to discern the differences between groups of Black people because you've just never had to live in community with people that don't look like you. And that is the key to solving that specific problem. Okay. Is being in relationship with people that don't look like you. You'll start to understand the differences. You'll start to recognize the commonalities and the nuances mm-hmm. of different shades of Black people, different hairstyles, different linguistic styles. Those are all nuances that you only experience when you live in community with black and brown people yeah well and sadly like living in idaho i mean i have a black guy at the gym that's my friend or this person you know i know like two or three but i live in the west where it's not a very diverse area so that understandable so it's even more imperative when you recognize that you live in an environment that is very homogenous right yes you're in an area that's like that it's almost more important for you to branch out and expand your horizon so that you won't fall back. Here we have a higher Latino population. And so I don't want to be like a polarizing thing, but I can still see like there's still 
problems going on. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And just being able to recognize that there is a difference. Again, awareness, awareness, awareness. Once you are aware of a problem, you can no longer ignore it. You can no longer look away and say it doesn't exist because something deep down inside of you is going to always say, you know, you know, you know. Yeah. Okay. I feel bad. We're almost an hour into it. I'm halfway through the questions, but let's get into that community. I mean, I don't want to build a community where you know, I recognize that there's a problem and I want to be part of the solution. But at the same time, like, should I feel guilty about being white? <laughs> that scares me in a way. Like, I want to see us like the Dr. King, you know, like when my black children, you know, can sit down with your, <laughs> I don't know the quote exactly, but, but that's something that I believe in. Like, I want to see that society that's more integrated like that. But yeah. how do we do that? You know, how do we recognize the problems, but not like, tear down the other side. Does that make sense? It, does, it, it makes absolute sense. Okay. Well, it, here's the thing. It's going to take a sacrifice. You know, that's the easy and the hard answer. It's going to take sacrifice and nothing worth having is going to come without sacrifice. And in the space where you are doing life with someone who does not look like you, maybe who doesn't share the same values as you, it's going to take a sacrifice of your preferences to understand someone else's and vice versa. And I feel like the more you do it, the more comfortable you'll be with it. Um, It's going to sting at first. I mean, it might downright hurt, physically hurt at first, Mm -hmm. but the more you engage in conversation and community with people who don't look like you, I feel like you're creating, you know, new neural pathways in your brain. You know what I mean? Yes. It's like you're physically changing your mindset from the inside out. And a lot of that just comes with experience, with doing it, with doing the work. And it's going to take really identifying areas where, you know, why is it so hard for you individually? Taking a look at those areas really sitting with the fears and maybe the long-held beliefs, taking time to ask yourself the hard questions. Because here's the thing, somebody's going to sit down and say, why does this bother me so much? And they're going to, you know, hopefully they'll be honest with themselves. And some people are going to say, you know what, I'm going to move forward despite this. And some people are going to say, no, this costs too much. Yeah, you know, And that's the reality of life. For some people, it's going to cost too much and they're going to remain where they are. Yeah. But for some people, they will see that the benefit outweighs the cost. They will see that speaking up when things are inequitable and uh, speaking up when they see these types of things happening, you know, in their backyards, in their churches, in their grocery stores, in their communities, in their places of work at their dinner tables, in their homes, in their families, when they see these things happening, they will say the benefit of stopping this now and ending this here outweighs the cost of maybe losing a few friends on Facebook, you know, or, or maybe even unfortunately alienating some family members, the benefit long-term outweighs the cost. And that's what it's going to take. It's going to take some sacrifice 
and some some blood, sweat, and tears. Well, and I hope we can all get to a point like a growth mindset. You know, like if one person sacrifices, it's it's going to hurt somebody. Like this is all a benefit for everybody. Does that Absolutely. make sense? It's a collective benefit. It's a yeah. collective benefit, and it's going to be a collective sacrifice. And you know, some would say that people of color have already come to the sacrifice. They have already come to the table having sacrificed so much and you're just looking for somebody to meet you there, you know? Yeah. 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 Is there more you want to tell me about your message? You talked about how you write on this topic a lot. Like where do you write those things? And like, what are some messages that you try to deliver in your writing? So you can find um, a lot of my writing on my website. I have like two pages dedicated to things that I'm writing about specifically as it relates to Black women and infant health. So I list a lot of those things. I list, you know, other conversations I'm having, other interviews and blogs Mm -hmm. I'm having about that. And, you know, I also integrate those things with with faith. I'm a faith-based writer as well. So I, Mm -hmm. I write a lot about how justice and faith are really, you know, inseparable. And the core messages that I always want women to know is that they are seen, they are heard, and that they are loved. And at the foundation of those truths is where we all meet each other on on level ground. Yeah. As we're all looking for someone to see us, to hear us, and to love us. Well, and, and that's... Mm-hmm. that's a cool thing about bringing your faith into it. I think, I mean, I was thinking about that today. You watch the violence that's going on and, you know, I just get so frustrated and stuff. And the only thing that keeps me going to know like this is positive is I have to sometimes go, this person is loved by God. And regardless of how I may see them or how I may, you know, somehow like they have some specialness to them because they're a creature of God. And I, I think that 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 helps you have a better, like, if we can all get to that point, I guess, even if, I guess, you're not a person of faith, even if we get to the point, like, do unto others as we'd want them to do unto us, regardless of whatever their color or their race or gender or anything is. Yeah, I totally agree with you there. Um, That's the ultimate goal is to treat people with the same respect, the same honor, that you would want someone to do for you. And and I think really at the heart of Black Lives Matter movement is this central truth. And, mm-hmm. and for any other movement where people who have felt oppressed have risen up and have, you know, protested and fought against institutionalized racism or oppression of any kind is that we all have basic human rights. And that is, you know, the right to live without fear, mm-hmm. the right to work and play and eat and, and love without fear and condemnation and judgment. And, you know, I feel like those are central, those are central tenets of the gospel and those should be central tenets of our everyday lives, regardless of whether we ascribe to a faith or a religion or not. Yeah. And once we can get on that same page, then I feel like, you know, we would be able to make lots of progress as a nation, goodness, as as a globe. Yes. We will return to our show after a word from our sponsors. 
for the ultimate in backcountry comfort, check out the high quality gear of Teton Hammock Company. Whether you're going on an overnight trip or a week-long adventure, the ultralight outdoor equipment from the Teton Hammock Company will keep you warm, dry, and sleeping like a baby. Their products are made of top quality materials that outperform all others. Check them out at tetonhammocks.com with an S. That is tetonhammocks.com. Hang with the best. Teton Hammock Company. Now back to the episode. Yeah. Yeah. When we like get to that idea that we all deserve the same freedom and the same opportunity and all of that kind of thing. So I think that's great. Are you working together with others in the space or do you feel like you're kind of alone <laughs> with your message? Do you know what I mean? No, that- I don't think I'm, I, you know, I don't ever think I'm alone here. I feel like there are, are, are so many others who are championing justice and equality and equity in spaces, especially for, you know, people of color. And also, you know, trying to heal racial trauma. There are so many doing the work. And honestly, if you're a social media person, or even if you aren't really a social media person, just simply going to search hashtags about, you know, racial justice or social justice. For me, it's reproductive justice and you know, and faith and where those things intersect, just doing a a hashtag search will literally bring up, you know, dozens, if not thousands of results of people who are speaking on, on the same topic. This just happens, you know, to be my little corner where, you know, I try to champion the cause from where I am, but there are plenty of, of my brothers and sisters who are doing the same. Well, and, you know, I follow quite a few of them. And that's where I, you know, I've, I've known these problems existed for, for, for a, I'm, I'm not going to say it's been a long time because, because I was publicly educated and, you know, thought that we had stopped racism with the civil rights once we got rid of Jim Crow laws and things like that. But at least, you know, like you said, if you can follow those people, do you have any maybe books or resources that would be really helpful for people to understand these issues? Um, Oh, goodness, so many. A few off the top of my head. One of them is Healing Racial Trauma. That's a book, and I'm not going to remember every author, so I'm Mm -hmm. I'm trying to remember the book's names, so I may not remember the book and the author. I'm kind of just throwing this at you without any Um, warning. Then there is I'm Still Here. I want to say that's the name of the book by Channing those words work together They're, if you google those words then you'll find the person i'm talking about okay um well, the link color up. of compromise um okay. jamar tisby there is a a podcast that i love listening to it's called truth's table and it's it's literally a group of women of black women who really just champion the voices and the experiences of black women Um, as it relates to so many facets of their lives. And if you're looking to be educated, that is a great place to start because they really cover a wide range of topics. And then if you are um, someone in in the faith-based space um, and you're looking for faith-based resources, there's several uh, people in the faith-based space that are doing this type of work. Faith Brooks, um, there's another podcast. It's called Melanated Faith. There's Be the Bridge with Latasha Morrison. 
I think I've actually heard of some of these. So I'm like, wow, I'm impressed. With this. Oh, that's so awesome. <laughs> I'm so glad I'm giving you resources that you haven't heard of because <laughs> I'm always afraid that I'm giving resources that people have already kind of, you know, experienced. But yeah, that's great. Yeah. So those are a few of my favorite. Yeah. A few of my favorites. Okay. Well, how do you feel like we can create a situation where this can be a non-polarized issue? I mean, sadly, every time, you know, I was so excited, like I said, when the movement hit and it seemed like we were going in a direction where we're like, okay, let's get rid of some of these, you know, unjust laws that are um, affecting people of color uh, disproportionately. Then, and then it's just, I don't know what's happened. <laughs> it's just spiraled into this huge mess. What are you feel like some ways that we can make this a non-polarized issue and still like be able to bonker, you know, the problems that we have? Yeah. Um, truthfully, let's be real. I don't know if it's ever going to be a non-polarizing issue because when we think about everything that our country was founded on, it's founded on principles that promote one group of people over another. And whenever you have a country, a democracy, a government that benefits from that happening, anything you do to upset that is going to cause problems. So I don't know if it will ever be a non-polarizing issue, but can we find a way to, at the bare minimum, make sure that everyone has a similar quality of life? Sure. Yeah. You know, can we find a way where Black women and babies are not dying at disproportionate rates? Sure. You know, can we find ways to prevent this type of disparity? You know, sure. Um, And that, it takes work and it takes people and individuals who do not consider equity oppression. You know what I mean? It's, It's not wrong for people to have equity. And as long as you have a group of people who don't want that, then it's going to be a polarizing issue. And if those people are always in the majority, then it's going to always be a polarizing issue. Yeah. Well, that's interesting that you say that because, you know, when the Black Lives Matter, you know, all the hashtags started Mm -hmm. and different things like that, there were a lot of people like, well, all lives matter. And maybe that's what you're talking about, like where we all of a sudden feel threatened when we're focused on one race over the other, like somehow by acknowledging that Black Lives Matter, somehow we're saying that all lives don't matter, which isn't what wasn't what was being said at all, you know. Um, And so we've got to root that out of ourselves. If we feel triggered, basically, by hearing a person say, you know, Black Lives Matter, that maybe we do need to look at those issues within ourselves. Because if we're creating the polarization, do you know what I mean? We're not, we're creating this constant problem that we can't ever, we can't solve issues when one side's feeling offended all the time. Do you know what I mean? It's true. It's true. It's true. And, you know, honestly, there, I don't even know if there's a way to help white people specifically understand the weight of being black. There's just not a way to do it. You know, we found a way to, to make men be able to feel like uh, contraction pains with those TENS units. <laughs> we, look, we found a lot of ways to do a lot of things, but there just isn't a way to accurately portray 
the collective grief and trauma that Black people have experienced in America. There's no way to quantify that. But what I do know is when people and allies come alongside people of color and they have empathy, that's where healing begins. Yes. And empathy, while, you know, sympathy is great, you know, oh, I feel bad for you. Well, and I think that's been the problem. There's been sympathy, mm-hmm. but we continue that sympathy almost pushes people of well, color right. even further down. Because you, know you don't I mean? have to be in relationship with somebody to have sympathy for them. Yeah. Right? Somebody can say, Oh, you know, my ball rolled down the street and now I can't find it anymore. Oh, I feel bad for you. So sorry. That's sympathy. Empathy says I will either go down the street and look for your ball and bring it back to you, or I will go buy you another one. That's empathy. Empathy moves the needle from disconnection to connection. And so when we start to think about who gains something from America staying the way it is, then we can kind of think about, well, how can I come alongside groups of people who have been historically and currently are oppressed by the current status of where America is. Yeah. Well, I hope that, you know, where I work with a lot of homeschoolers, I think that's what's opened my eyes to it is that I feel, you know, that tiny bit of oppression that you get, (laughs) but but that's not something I wear on me. Do you know what I mean? Like it has Mm -hmm. to be. And so it's, it's not as prevalent, but at the same time, it's made me like, feel like more empathy for people. And and I think that like every person needs to think about that. Like what way are you different that's caused a little bit of a discrimination in some way? It might be your religion. It might be, you know, your lifestyle choices. It might be whatever, but, and hopefully that helps to build a little bit more connection as well. And that we want to walk alongside, you know, and help, help with it. Let's talk about maybe habits in your personal life that you feel like would create this better learning and these better communities. What are some maybe habits that we should develop to do those types of things? We talked about empathy. Is there anything else? Um, Education. There are a lot. While I wanted to say conversation first, I want to say education first because sometimes we can be so eager to have conversations that we have not educated ourselves and then we end up having conversations and then everybody goes away angry, right? Yes, yeah. So education, empathy, of course, then educate. So now you have a feeling that you need to change or do something. Education is the best way. Learning key critical issues for people of color is going to get you to a place where Maybe you don't always understand where they're coming from, but you have a frame of reference, okay? Education really allows you to understand some of how the systematic oppression of Black and Brown people, what it looks like every day, what it looks like historically, um, what it looks like in different places and spaces where Black people are and people of color are that will help you to have just a very basic working knowledge of why Black people are pushing back, right? Mm-hmm. And then once you've educated yourself, and here's the thing, you probably won't ever know everything there is to know. And I want to encourage people who are trying to educate themselves, 
don't be overwhelmed. There's so much information out there. There's so many different voices out there, but do what you can, right? Mm -hmm. So one thing that I know grieves, grieves to the soul, a lot of black and brown people are trying to have conversations with people who have not even tried to educate themselves. Yeah. That is, that is a grievous process, let me tell you. <laughs> so by doing just that basic groundwork, when you do have conversations, it becomes a dialogue, it becomes a place of respect and value, rather than a place where people find offense. Yes. Yeah, and then you can have those conversations. You know, they may still be a little uncomfortable, but they won't be as uncomfortable as if you came to the table with no, 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 no knowledge. Yeah. Well, and that's kind of where I'm feeling. I don't know if any of my audience has, has felt the, you know, uncomfortableness in my, it's, it's weird for me to be asking you these questions. Like, when do I start to sound racist? <laughs> and when do I, I oh, I'm really, I'm really truly curious about how you feel and a lot of these issues and what we can do to help and those types of things. And, but I guess the more conversations you have, the more comfortable you are with them. And like you said, if people aren't even willing to entertain it, that's a real problem that we have in our society or to dismiss it. That's what I've seen so much is like, we've got the one side totally dismissing everything about it. And then we have another side that's like, I don't know, just the violence on it is just, it's heartbreaking, I guess, in a, in a way of like of there's not dialogue going on anymore. And that's that's really sad. So yeah. And then also be an agent of promoting those types of interactions. Mm-hmm. Maybe you're not the person that can actually start up the conversation. Maybe you're still a little uncomfortable about what to say or what to share, but you can be someone who connects people to have conversations. You can be someone who offers a neutral space for the conversation to happen. So just know that there are a variety of ways to help move progress along. It doesn't always have to look one way or the other. And just having people who are willing to facilitate sometimes is really powerful because there are a lot of spaces that are just not neutral. Yes, yeah, definitely. And that's where I think we just hit a wall in that. And that's, I'd love to see that kind of dismantle a little bit where it's just not these two sides and there's, you know, and you have to pick one or the other, like there's parts of each that we can have empathy and understanding and, and still talk about it and not have it be such a, an inflaming topic. Yeah. It's great. Well, I'd love to know, like, what are your long-term goals? I mean, where are you hoping to take this I'm going to say it's a mission because you say in your bio that you feel called <laughs> to do this. But. I, do, I do. Yeah. So um, where, where do you see yourself going? Gosh, I think my, just more of what I'm doing now, my favorite thing to do is to talk to people. My favorite thing to do is just to be in community with people. So more spaces where we get to have conversations, more spaces where, you know, I can share these messages with black and white women, with women mm-hmm. of color and women who are, are not of color to help promote awareness. And, I, you know, I, I'm still kind of trying to figure that out a little bit because, you know, <laughs> honestly, coronavirus and, and everything has just completely rocked our world. So 
I've really allowed myself to kind of loosen up on maybe a five-year plan (laughs) 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 and maybe kind of have like a six-month plan. (laughs) Well, you you said you're homeschooling now, right? (laughs) Yes, yes. So, you know, a lot of moving forward looks like for me is, like I said, having more conversations, just creating spaces where people can have conversations and really passing down these trinkets of wisdom to my children. So that's really what it looks like in the near, near future for me. Yeah. Well, and there is something to be said about starting your community in your own household and starting that change to happen in your own household. You know, I know my parents were pretty open. My dad had a lot of friends that are people of color, but we've experienced that side, you know, coming from white families that maybe didn't have the, um, there was a little bit of racism there. I mean, there were things that I remember my father-in-law would say that I just would cringe because I'm just like, that's just so, but then changing that, you know what I mean? Like I would point that out to my kids, like that is not how we believe and that's not how, and I think that if we can start our community in our own homes and, you know, like you said, you're homeschooling now, be able to change the the education for our own children so that maybe they'll know what Juneteenth is, you know, that, right. that we can, right. we can do those things with our kids. And so I believe that's the greatest power for changes within our own homes. And so if we can start there, then hopefully that trickles out to the rest of the community. So I I really believe that the dinner table, the breakfast table, Mm -hmm. those are the most powerful tables in the world. Exactly. And that's where we can really change it. But do you have any final parting words for our listeners? And then give us your contact information where we can find all of your writing and your information. Sure. I really believe that we have the power to influence change. No man is an island. We can't do it on our own, but working together, being together in community and putting aside our own individualism to work for the better good of one another is what it's all about. That's what it's all about. Once we get to that point, then I think we will really start to see a lot of the issues that we're dealing with now really being taken care of. Yeah. Do unto others. Do unto others as you'd want them to do unto you. Right. Definitely. And contact information? Yes, contact information. So like I said, I'm I'm a social butterfly. I love social (laughs) media. So I'm on Instagram as Kwani Boo. I'm on Twitter as Q-Y-R-D, A-R-D-0-8, and I'm on Facebook as The PhD Mama. So once you see one of them, you probably will figure out it's me on all of them. So (laughs) I think I have links to the other ones on like separate pages and stuff. And does it have links to your website? Because you mentioned that earlier. Yes, my website is www.thephdmama with two m's.com. So you can find me there, all of the work that I'm doing, where I'm writing different things in different places. And yeah, we can get to know each other a little better on there too. Well, it's really fun to see how many times people have reached out to you to talk to you about different issues. Our friend uh, Katie Reed uh, did a podcast with you, but then I've seen a lot of other podcasts that people are trying to talk about these issues. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. <laughs> Again, we've been chatting with Quantrilla Ard. You can find her at Instagram, Facebook, uh, Twitter. We're going to be sure to also connect you with her website as well. But thank you so much. This is a, such an important topic to come on and talk to our audience about and just huge mind-blowing paradigm shifts. <laughs> I appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to The Luminous Mind. Music featured in this episode from Scott Holmes. To learn more about our podcast, check us out at theluminousmind.net.